going to turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Wow, it's so funny. You guys are all sitting in the dark, and I'm finally sitting in the light here. <laughs> so next week, you guys will, will all be in the light. It'll be so great. So um, you know somebody else to think about this is Xander. So give Xander a hand, okay? Because uh, he's basically... Uh, running the project. He's the project coordinator for the facilities. And uh, so uh, that's really been a blessing because I know nothing about it and have no interest in knowing, to be honest with you. <laughs> but he's great at it, so uh, we compliment each other. So good stuff. Okay, 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Can you hardly believe it? We've almost made the run all the way through the book of Revelation. And in one sense, this is really where the book's name comes from, this chapter. It took us 18 chapters to get there. The revealing of what Christ is going to do as he comes back uh, to the earth. And you know, uh, because I've uh, been repeating it almost every time we've gotten here, that we're just following a divine outline. And that outline is found in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The divine outline will always be found right there in 19th verse, where uh, John is told by Jesus to write the things which you have seen. And he did. He wrote the things which he saw. He saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, and he wrote that out in cha chapter 1. And then write the things uh, which are, and he wrote those things out. He wrote uh, chapters 2 and chapter 3. He wrote about the current churches uh, that the Lord uh, directed him to, the, that postal route uh, uh, of churches in uh, Asia Minor. And uh, he gave them directions on what was going good with their church and what was going poorly with their church. And we went through that at length. Uh, it did. It spoke to the churches of the time. It spoke to the church at large for all time. And we think it probably speaks to of church history. And uh, we went through all of that. And then it says, and write the things which will take place after this. And remember, that phrase is metatauta in the great Greek. And the things which take place after this are everything we see uh, uh, from chapter 4 on. But if you flip to chapter 4, the first words there, it says, after these things, there it is again, metatauta. After what things? After the church age. After the church age, the church itself is seen in heaven. That's chapters 4 and chapters 5. And then chapters 6 through 18 is Christ pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And the way I say it, I don't know if this is proper, but he does business, so to speak, with the church or with the uh, nation of Israel as promised in his scriptures. And so uh, we've been seeing that. Isn't it interesting? For all of these chapters, folks, we've been going through the tribulation period from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18. And there were a few interludes in there. And we got to meet the players who were involved, including, uh, you know, Satan and the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And for the last couple weeks, We've been, uh, prior to our hiatus last Wednesday, for the last couple weeks, we've been seeing, haven't we, 
that this Babylon, the great, is fallen. First, the uh, political uh, structure, and then the ec- or, excuse me, the religious structure, and then the economic political structure in uh, chapter 18. So in chapter 17, uh, uh, the religious structure, and then in chapter 18, that economic political uh, structure. Uh, one world religion dealt with in chapter 17. One, uh, one world uh, economy and one world uh, uh, kind of union and that we've seen in the last several years uh, start to move to, that is being dealt with by the Lord, and those both fall. Babylon the Great falls, and we talked about, what is that a real city? Could it, could it be that Babylon, the city is rebuilt? Remember Saddam Hussein, he tried to rebuild it. It hasn't really uh, done that. It could be that, but, but most probably it's that system, that worldly system that sets itself up against uh, the Lord's kingdom. And now we come to chapter 19. Chapter 19. It's like the dawn breaking, <laughs> Right? Here we see heaven exulting over Babylon. So I'm going to read it a, a little bit of it, probably just till chapter 10. We'll ch- uh, chapter 10, verse 10. We'll pray, and then we'll study what this is talking about. Here it comes: the word of the Lord. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, "Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God." For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted excuse me, the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise your, or our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you not, do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So Lord, we need your help here, Lord. We need your help to understand and to think about and to just open up the glories of, of Christ, of you, Lord. and. Um, and to then celebrate that and to worship you, Lord, in our hearts as we come to understand this as best we can. We need your help by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look at this. After these things, we're into chapter 19. Babylon has been judged. Babylon has been judged. It's oppressive and evil and diabolical. And after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude. Well, Turn back to chapter 7 so you can remind yourself. 
Look in chapter 7, verses 9 through, you know, 14, 15, 16, but in chapter 7, there's a multitude from the great tribulation. In chapter 7, starting in verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're probably, this great multitude back in chapter 19, is probably the same great multitude that we find there. And those uh, folks are the tribulation saints, the martyred saints, those who surrendered their life to Jesus Christ during the tribulation and were killed for it. And they wanted that, uh, their blood to be avenged because this evil uh, one-world system, both politi- or in a religious sense and a political economic sense, had set itself up, including, as you know, uh, having to take this mark to buy and to sell. And then the Antichrist set himself up and basically discarded that one-world religion and Uh, uh, you know, made people worship him. But all of that set itself up against the kingdom of God and created some tribulation saints. And of course, those people in chapter 19, having now seen that Babylon has been judged, are giving the Lord uh, great amounts of praise. (laughs) They they see that their uh, uh, blood is being avenged. And what they say, this great multitude in heaven, they shout and sing Hallelujah, hallelujah. What does hallelujah mean? It's the uh, Hebrew for praise the Lord. It's the Greek way of saying hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, right? It's really, uh, uh, you know, just such a beautiful and an outstanding word. And probably uh, for us who don't know Hebrew, we don't get the full effect of this, right? But, but here they are, and they, they see that their blood is being avenged. And of course, just everything within them just wants to praise the Lord. And what do they say? Look at this. Look at this. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. I want you to see something here. I want you to notice something here. They're worshiping a God, they're worshiping God according to his attributes. You say, well, I can see the excitement on your face right now. Uh, But they're worshiping God according to his attributes, not according to how they feel. Now, let me say that again. (laughs) They feel great, yes, but they're worshiping according to his attributes here. What an appropriate way. In this case, their blood has been avenged. But their sort of worship doesn't depend upon whether the circumstance of life is good or bad. They're worshiping because salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. In fact, in one psalm, it says power belongs to God. I think it's Psalm 62, but you check me on that. I could be wrong. Power belongs to God. Salvation and glory and honor and power. Listen, folks, these are people that have lost their lives, but have gained eternity with Christ. 
To some who that have happened to, it's woe is me, woe is me. I can't believe the Lord would do that to me. I stood up, with, I stood up for him in the middle of the tribulation. How dare he slay me? Here they're like, yes, no matter what has happened to me, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Why? Check this out. For true and righteous are his judgments. If the church of Jesus Christ would internalize and believe this statement, we would have a lot less belly aching. A lot less belly aching. You understand, right? That when you ask, or excuse me, when you are stubborn enough to continue to tell God whether you're in the family of God or you're not, I'm going to do it my way. Frank Sinatra. You know what the book of Romans says he does? He sets himself up in wrath. And how does he do it? By just taking his hands off the wheel. He says, you want it your way? You can have it. That's what the book of Romans in the first couple chapters tells us about the wrath of God being poured out. He just, yes, that's one way he can do it. Other ways he could do it, right? He can bring things into our lives, tribulations into our lives. Why do bad things happen to us? Well, if you read the Bible, the Bible says there bad things happen to us because we live in a fallen world. We just live in a fallen world. Remember when that tower fell on those people? And the people who it happened to were, were saying, "Why, man, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Did somebody sin? And the answer was, no, you just live in a fallen world. Sometimes things happen just because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen to us because we live in a fallen world. But another reason bad things happen to us sometimes is because we reap what we sow. Is that true? If we reap to the flesh, we'll, or if we sow to the flesh, we'll reap fleshly things. If we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap spiritual things, right? You agreed? But you know what? The Bible also tells us that sometimes God brings clouds. Sometimes God sends the clouds. But always, folks, listen, if the church would learn what these saints have learned, these tribulation martyrs, his judgments are always righteous and true. God's ways in my life, no matter what happens circumstantially, are always the right thing. And they're always truthfully helping me to be conformed into the image of his son. Amen? How about this? For true and righteous are his judgments. These were people who were slain in the tribulation because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has. He's done that. He's done what he said he would do. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again in verse 3, they said what? Praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. In other words, Babylon <laughs> is wiped out. <laughs> He's done this. His judgments are righteous and true and eternal. And this one is uh, taken full effect in the fact that uh, her, the, the smoke rises uh, uh, up forever and ever. And then in verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Can you see the progressive loudness? 
the noise that's happening here, sometimes it's so just wonderful just to be quiet and to, um, you know, just to maybe sing in your prayer closet or just talk to the Lord quietly in your prayer closet. But you ever been around when people are really worshiping the Lord loudly? You know, there's this one thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's this one time, and we didn't get to go this year, but there's this one time a year where we do get to go, uh, <laughs> absent the pandemic. And we get to go to the... Um, uh, East Coast Pastors Conference with uh, pastors. There's about 1,200 pastors there or, or leaders, and we're all kind of jammed into this, um, what is it, an auditorium. Uh, uh, and, and so you got 1,100 people in this auditorium, kind of an old auditorium, and then they just bring out, a, they don't you know, have a whole bunch of instruments, just one guitar and one guy leading worship. And then you have 1,200 men just singing unto the Lord. In fact, we have a recording of it back there on the tape. It's for the anybody who wants it. You could play it in your car, but it's a bunch of men singing. But it is beautiful. It's so awesome to hear lots of people, whether it be men or women or mix of both, uh, praising the Lord. And here it's getting progressively louder because not only are the martyred saints praising the Lord, now... There's this 24 elders who we thought and talked about earlier in the book of Revelation is the church, is the church. How could it be the church? Because we know in Thessalonians that Jesus is going to come in the clouds at the final trump. He's going to come in the clouds and he's going to bring, uh, meet his church in the clouds and bring them to heaven. That's chapters four and chapter five of the book of Revelation. There's going to be a seven-year honeymoon period before the Lord comes back here in Revelation chapter 19. And those people, along with those four living creatures, those seraphim with all those heads and all those eyes, they're up there and they're praising the Lord, God who sat on the throne. Uh, they worship God who sat on the throne saying, now look at this time, amen. You know, uh, some people have said amen is one word that everybody in every language, is, every language knows. They know this word. It means this. It means so be it, or yes, it's going to come to fruition. Yes, it will happen. Amen. I agree. It's happening. It's a, it's a word of belief. It's a word of belief and trust. Amen. I believe it. It's going to happen. So be it, Lord. And then Right behind it is hallelujah, amen, hallelujah. That should be our anthem. Because I want you to think about something here. I want you to think about something. We've gone for six, or all these chapters, six through chapter 18 of tribulation after tribulation, <laughs> you know, Trumpet judgment, or seal judgment, trumpet judgment, bowl judgment, the things happening, and, and, and you know, we've... He's detailed it. And, you know, uh, after a while, you're like, wow, you're laying it on pretty thick here. But I want you to see something. The, the people who have the heavenly perspective, catch what I'm saying here. People who have a heavenly perspective of the same situation, even whether it's the martyred saints who were inside the tribulation or even the ones who were 
outside the tribulation because the church, we've been looking down on what was happening. Listen, listen. They can say, no matter what, these people, the ones with a heavenly perspective, in the middle of a tribulation, amen, hallelujah. Amen, hallelujah. Do you know one mark of a mature Christian? I always say this, but my badge is getting bigger. I always say, what if we made a crest for the Christian? You know, like a coat of, what is that thing for your family? What a coat of arm, what is it called? A crest or a shield or whatever, and you had all the figures on there. Of course, right? You would have the cross. That's, that's the ultimate. You'd have the cross. But what, you know, some other things that you would have. How would you, how would you express forgiveness? I guess the cross. How would you express love? I, I guess the cross. Yes, but all the different pictures up there. But one of the different, uh, one of the pictures up there oh, in your crest that you would put on your shirt or your chest or whatever, your sweatshirt or whatever, your banner for the Christian. One of them would be praise. One of them would be praise. Do you remember in Numbers 11? Do you remember in Numbers 11? Just go to Numbers 11 because I want you to see the first verse of Numbers 11. Remember when uh, they're out in the wilderness and uh, (laughs) the nation of Israel, listen folks, the nation of Israel, God's sending these miracle food like the snow we saw this week. Every morning they wake up, miracle food, miracle food, miracle food. Boom, take just enough for today. Don't let it rot. It'll rot if you take more than today. Uh, but, but then they, they start complaining. We're sick of your miracle food. We're sick of it. Can't you do something different? Who's cooking around here? And they complain. And remember, they ask for some meat. Look what, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Look back in um, verse 33. So they wanted some meat, but while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Why? Because they complained against his provision and care. You know, uh, Philippians 2 tells us to do everything without uh, complaining and disputing. Remember that? So what I'm trying to say is a heavenly perspective. The mark of a person who's maturing in the Lord is that they can say, Amen, Hallelujah in all circumstances. You say to yourself, well, I had some certain circumstance this week and I wasn't saying amen, nor was I saying hallelujah. Yeah, but that's okay. You know what that means? That's like a measuring stick. The Lord is, if you'll look, if you'll look in that situation, and it wasn't amen, and it wasn't hallelujah for you, the Lord is saying, there's some more maturing we have to do in this area. You get it? He says, or he tells us that these people, as the chorus of worship gets louder and louder, these ones came and just said, amen, so be it, Lord. Hallelujah. An elder, a mature person, and say it no matter the circumstance.
Why can they say it? (laughs) I'm going round and round, but I'm doing it on purpose. They can say it because they know the Lord and his attributes. They don't focus on the circumstance, whether it be good or whether it be bad. They focus on salvation. (laughs) When you're thinking about this bill or that relationship or this thing gone wrong, there's a tendency to say, woe is me and hurt and do Listen, if all that the Lord ever did for you or me was give us salvation, that's enough. The other stuff is just the icing on the cake. Salvation and glory and honor, they all belong to him, including the power. You're going to be out of that circumstance someday. You know this, right? I don't know what it is. It could be very dire. I'm not patting you on the head and say, suck it up. It it does. It hurts. But you're going to be out of it someday, and it's going to be a day that's quick, and you're going to be in to heaven with the Lord. He says, amen, or he tells us, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. One commentator calls this part of the scriptures the summit of all praise. The summit of all praise. Listen to what Spurgeon says about praise and worship. Heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. And on that day, when the springtide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits. We do not yet know, beloved, of what happiness we're capable. Ah. That's what's waiting for us. He goes on in verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, look at this word, here it comes again, Alleluia. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he reigns. This is the one. The summit of praise, the all-powerful one, no one more powerful, this one, he reigns. Now, remember who John's writing this to, people who are being persecuted. This is real stuff for real people. We're, we get our you know, pre-tribulation maps out and our diagrams. Are we pre-trib? Are we post-trib? Are we mid-trib? Are we historic, you know, historical uh, uh, interpreters of uh, uh, the book of Revelation? Are we futurists? Are we preterists? We get all that. But, but John is writing to uh, two and four real people, and they're hurting. And he wants them to know through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Lord shows him things, that through all of those tribulations, the Lord never stopped reigning. (laughs) He never stopped reigning. He always has reigned. He always will reign. So he says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now here I got to go through something with you. I've alluded to it several times, but... I'm going to tell it to you again. 
I want to talk to you a little bit so that you'll understand what's happening here. Given what we already know from the book of Revelation, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about a traditional Jewish wedding. It's alluded to several different places in the Gospels, or excuse me, in the Scriptures. Of course, it's alluded to even with the uh, husband and wife or the mom and dad of our Lord and Savior, human mom and dad of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, Mary and Joseph. And it basically was a three-part arrangement. It was a three-part step. And the, the first one was an arrangement or an engagement. This happened through families. You know what the rabbis used to teach? The rabbis used to teach, hey, listen, if you examine the Old Testament, marriage ain't going too well. Uh, because if you look at some of these people, Esau, he chose some Hittite ladies. Mom and dad were heartbroken. Jacob chose Rachel, you know that, but he got in that mess, or I guess it wasn't a mess. When he was duped a little bit and had to work for Rachel for, or Leah first, remember this? You could even think about Samson marrying a Philistine girl or being, yeah, right? And, and all of the things that happened. So, so I guess the reason I'm telling you that is the rabbis, not saying I agree or disagree, but they would teach that picking, leaving it up to the kids ain't working. So for the traditional Jewish marriage, they would often come together and they would find families that were friends that had same values and same thoughts and same, and they, they would come together and they would make an arrangement or an engagement sometimes even before the kid, kids were born. If you have a boy, if you have a girl, we want our families to be married or, you know, have them get married, right? Or maybe even when they were young or playmates or whatever. You understand that. That was very early on. And then a second step is uh, the betrothal. And that's the place where we find Mary and Joseph, right? This is kind of the place where they formalize that marriage or that arrangement that happened between the families. The betrothal part, they would actually formalize it. And they would come together in the presence of the moms and dads. And they would make this contract or this covenant that this girl was going to marry this guy, the betrothal. And generally then, the betrothal period was for about one year. And there was no consummation of the marriage during that time. There was no consummation. But, but when they first made that coming together and they made that betrothal, they would do things like pay a bride's price. Now listen, this is something you want to pay very much attention to because it has all, a lot to do with the book of Revelation. They would pay a bride's price. What would they do? They would, the father of the groom, depending on how wealthy was, he was, would pay money to the bride's family. But look, it was a matter of, <laughs> one, I'm wealthy, two, she's worth it, that they wanted to give more money. You understand? They wanted to give a wealthy price. Are you catching what I'm trying to say here? I don't know if I'm articulating it well. The father of the groom 
depending on how wealthy he was, and also because he wanted his son to feel great, or whatever, his son to feel great, he wanted to pay more or a lot for the bride. Of course, if he wasn't wealthy, he could do his best. But he wanted to make sure she was esteemed highly, and he wanted to prove it by the amount of money that he paid. You catching this? And if he, like I said, wasn't wealthy, he'd make other arrangements. There seems to be some indication in the Bible that the groom could actually work to gain the betrothal contract. Rachel, Leah, those sorts of things, right? You get what I'm saying? And when that money was given during that betrothal period, listen to this, the groom and his family were now under obligation to protect the bride. Even though they weren't going to consummate the marriage and live together, it was still, it was under his covering. So this would happen, and they would make this betrothal, and they would have wine there and some other things. And when it got to the place where they'd settled all the details and how that was going to work out, listen to this now. Oftentimes the bride would have her cup of wine, and she would drink the wine, listen, to say, Okay, we're all now in agreement. But guess what the, bri- or the groom would say? I always get bride and groom mixed up. But anyway, guess what the groom would say? Next year, when we come together, that's when I can drink the wine with you. And then, and then what would happen? There would be this year period. What would the groom do? He would go back to his father's house, and father and son, this would be really funny at my house, but anyway, father and son would put on an addition to the house. They would make place for the, the groom and his bride to live. And oftentimes this took a long time. Like I said, it would up to about a year time. And at some point after a year, The father would say, okay, the room looks great. Go get your bride. And what would he do? He would grab his buddies, the people in his wedding party, and they would often have instruments, and they would walk through the town, often at night, and they would go and get the bride. And she had her dress ready and could hear the trumpets blowing or the music playing, and she'd be, oh my goodness, this could be the day, and she, would get, and she would get ready, and then they would walk back through the town, and there are some indications in the literature that even within some of the towns, they had canopies set up so that you could perform a wedding ceremony in the middle of the town at night. Now listen, I won't go into all the details, but Some literature also suggests that they would often get married on Wednesdays because on Wednesdays in Israel, courts were closed, but on Thursdays they were open. Now, that's interesting, and the reason some say that would happen without being too graphic is that 
the lady, the girl, the bride, needed to keep herself pure during that year. And if she didn't, he would go and divorce her in the morning. Right? But, but, but hold on. So, so the marriage would happen, and they would go back to the house. The whole wedding party would go back to the house. But remember, they have a new bridal suite. And there is some suggestion that the party would still go on while the husband and wife now would go into their room and consummate the marriage. And then for one week, seven days, the honeymoon took place in that suite in this sense, the, 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 the groomsmen and uh, the bridesmaids and all that sort of thing. They would arrange for the, the party people to come in and to come out, uh, to go see the new couple, you understand, for one week, because life was hard, and so they just let them rest for a whole week of partying and seeing their friends and being invited to the wedding. And, and the, the, the wedding parties would be involved in that ushering in and ushering out and the gifts and all that sort of thing. But then, listen, at the end of seven days... When all of that had been taken care of, at the end of seven days, was a feast. Where the bride, or excuse me, the groom, would bring out his bride and present her to all the world. You know, as Mrs. Whomever, (laughs) for the first time. How cool is that? Now, why did I tell you all of that? Well, if you look back, remember what happened to us, the bride of Christ in the book of Revelation. We were, you were, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. You know the Bible says that, that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. (laughs) And here in this church age, this bride of Christ, look, this bride of Christ, we're in this church age before the rapture takes place, this era of grace and mercy. But at some point, the last trump will blow, and we're going to go meet our Lord and Savior in the clouds. The church is going to do that. They're going to go meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the clouds. And for seven years, we'll have a honeymoon in heaven. And what will we be doing? Well, we'll be doing what we did tonight. All glory and honor and power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lamb who was slain. We'll be praising the Lord, and we'll be getting to know the Lord, and He'll be interacting with us, and we'll be having communion, the very thing that the Bible's about, the presence of the Lord. That's what we'll be doing. And at the end of that period, seven-year period, here it comes. We're going to come back, look at this, in verse 11. I'll go back to 9. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The Bible says he is a warrior in Exodus 15. He's a man of war. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name with 
uh, written on that no one except or knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Here it comes. And the armies in heaven, what were they clothed with? Fine linen. Fine linen, back in verse 8, go back to verse 8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The bride of Christ, that's the church, is uh, uh, wrapped in fine linen. The bride of Christ is part of the armies of God. After seven years, honeymoon in heaven, as we come back, or getting getting ready to come back, It's as if the Lord is presenting his church without spot or wrinkle to all the world, saying, here's my bride. (laughs) That's you. That's me. That's us. Look at this. Back in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean, and bright. Look over in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Look in verse 25 to begin. This is very familiar to you, but we'll read it anyway. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for him for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish in other words don't worry you say how do you make yourself ready you abide in Christ well, in John 6 somebody asked What do we have to do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, here's the work, believe. (laughs) By the way, they asked, what do, do we need to do to do the works with an S? He said, here's the work, no S, believe. No S, believe. And he does the work, Ephesians 5.20. He washes us by the water of the word and sanctifies us and set us apart. And what does he do? It was granted for them to be arrayed in fine linen. If you don't know, Isaiah 61, you should mark this and know it. Because in Isaiah 61, all the way back, 800 years or so before the time of Christ, It's always been the same, folks. It's always been the same. The Messiah, what does he do? He enables us. Isaiah 61. He enables us to have the right clothes. The right clothes. I will, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You and I and we, in order to be in heaven with the Lord, have to have the right clothes on, (laughs) the robes of righteousness. So when it says this, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, pure and bright. For fine linen is the righteous acts 
of the saints. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Look over there, chapter 11. Look, look there, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Go there. And look in verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You get this? Paul's ministry was to present people as a chaste virgin to Christ. How? Why? How does he do that? He preaches the cross and Jesus Christ crucified. And we know... This isn't the best doctrine. Oh, man, it's so great. It's so liberating. It's so freeing. And we know that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So at the cross, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are imputed to Christ at the cross. He never was a sinner. His our sins were imputed to him like an accounting term. He didn't in his nature become a sinner, but they were imputed to him. And now he died, paid for our sins, and rose again. And for all who place their trust and surrender and believe in Jesus Christ, you get back his righteousness. All that Christ has, you have. Are you getting it? If you're found in Christ, you have what he has. You have his righteousness so that the Father no longer sees you in sin, but he sees you as perfectly righteous, just as if you never sinned. The chief need of men and women, boys and girls, to be uh, forgiven of their sins, free of guilt and shame for all eternity. And here it says, and to her it was granted, this church, the bride of Christ, to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What are the acts of the saints? To believe. <laughs> then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to this marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is funny, right? The Bible, man, if I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't have put this in here. How could John, having access to the whole, you know, the Holy Spirit using him so much, having access to all these things, make such a blunder? But that's the point. It's not because of us that all these blessings are granted. It's because of what he's accomplished. And here, he makes a blunder. He starts to worship an angel. And the angel says, what are you doing, man? See that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Just file that one away, folks, who believe in the gifts which I believe in and we believe in here. But the gifts of prophecy are not to prop people up. The gifts of prophecy are to raise Jesus up. Big difference. You can always tell somebody who's faking well, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's interesting. The enemy of our soul, isn't he uh, the unbelievable imp uh, imposter, impersonator? He came in, in the four horsemen uh, uh, chapter, uh, the, when, when we kicked off this tribulation, he came in on a white horse. He copies, but Jesus comes in on a white horse. Remember what he came in on first. He came in on a donkey. Jesus, meek and mild... 
the Lamb of God who takes away of the sin of the world, his first coming. But in his second coming, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, folks. And he's coming in on a white steed, not a donkey. And he who, uh, uh, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And he is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. You know, there's a really strange story of the Bible. You remember the child um, David had with Bathsheba? And do you remember uh, he being real worried about it, real worried about the, the child and all that sort of thing? And then the baby died. Remember this? And there's a kind of a strange thing that is written there that David does. Do you remember this? He went and washed his face, and he had supper or dinner. Why do you think he did that? Do you think he was callous, didn't care anymore? Do you think he was faking? No, I think it had something to do with this. He understood that that judgment was righteous and true. Well, here he says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's what the Lord's coming for a second time. He's going to set everything right, folks. He is a warrior, Exodus 15.3 says. He's a man of war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, in his eyes, in his person, is all judgment. We know that, but he, he knows everything. He can sift everything out, every imperfect thought, everything you're thinking in your head, all the things that you do in secret. He knows. He has it figured out. You're not fooling the Lord. Neither am I. And he has these flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, diadems. When he came the first time, what was his crown? A crown of thorns. Now he comes with many crowns, which means he has all the authority, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Some people believe the name written was Yahweh in the, you know, the abbreviated form because it's kind of the mysterious name of God. But I wonder if it's just a name that no one knows and that we're going to explore and begin to understand. What do I mean? Always a name in the Bible is a reflection of somebody's character. What if this is something that... Jesus is so grand and glorious and perfect and awesome and majestic. We can't even fathom it. We don't even know his nature. We don't, can't even say his name because we don't know it yet. We don't have this character. And in heaven, we'll be going to be exploring that for all time. How beautiful is that? Here, his eyes were like flame. His heads were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And commentators argue 50%, 50%. Is it his blood or is it the blood of the people he's about ready to kill? You be a Berean and think that through. And his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know this, John 1.1. 1, 1. He's the Word. He's the Word. He's the Logos, the perfect thought to the Greeks. He's the Word of God. He's come straight from heaven, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We get to ride horses. I don't even really know how to ride a horse that well, but we get to ride horses, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. You know this. The Word of God is a double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself 
will rule them with a rod of iron. That comes straight from a prophecy in the second psalm. If you don't know the second psalm, and Bible students want to know the second psalm, Psalm 2 says this. You could turn it over there. Written all those years before, Psalm 2 says this. Oh, man, I'm not getting there fast. Why do the nations rage? Folks, that's the story of the ages. People rage against the Lord and plot a vain thing. The kings set themselves, or the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsels together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their bond in pieces and cast away their cords from them. But he who sits in heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. You see that? Uh, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I'll declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations of your inheritance for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is coming to fruition. Psalm 2. He is now... Uh, uh, goes a sharp sword and that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. <laughs> this isn't the lamb, folks. This is the lion. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. The wrath belongs to him. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all caps, because he is the unique one. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he crowed with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, uh, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war. And we've talked about this. This is speaking again. It's already been alluded to uh, several places here, but it's speaking of the uh, war of Armageddon, that time when the world sets itself up against the Lord, together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then look at this. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. So the Antichrist is captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now you know, right? <laughs> that there's a place called Hades. It's the temporary resting place of the dead. There's no level, there's no purgatory, nothing like that, but that there's an eternal hell, and it's this lake of fire. And these two were cast alive into this lake of fire. Do me a favor, turn over with me to just to the next chapter and read verse 10. In the 1,000-year reign... Satan is let out of this place that he's being held, this prison, and he gets to run around for a time. We'll talk about that next week, but look in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's eternal hell, but hold on. Keep reading. 
There's also a great right throne judgment with where God will perfectly and fairly judge people who didn't give their lives to Christ, who didn't surrender their lives to the Messiah, who didn't give their lives to Jesus Christ. But he's going to do it fairly, and it actually says they will be judged, in verse 13, each one according to his works. So what are you counting on? You're counting on the righteousness of Christ in your life, or you're counting on your own works? God will be perfectly fair. You getting it? But look what it says in verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. So are you catching that? What's happening is the Lord is putting into eternal hell the beast and the false prophet. Who's going to follow? The devil, Satan. And who's going to follow that? All those who've never given their life to Jesus Christ. Yeah, ah. That's the one time I think you should say ah. Because what does it mean you want to do? You want to pray and you want to share and you want to love and you want to lay your life down. And you know what? Maybe you can go without the Lexus, working for the Lexus, working for the vacation in Hawaii. Maybe you can just go without that this year. But maybe what you can do is you can give and serve and love and lay your life down and lay our lives down so that many will stay out of that place. So you go back and you see here, verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You see this? Now remember, and I'll close with this. Listen, when Jesus comes back to the earth, we've talked about this on several occasions. This battle of Armageddon is going to take place. The timing and sequence, listen, there's a hundred different views on how that's going to take place. I've tried to be giving you some views. We know these things. We know that at some point, Jesus' feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. That's just overlooking the old city. That's in Zechariah 14. We know that. And we know that uh, there's going to be earthquake and earthquake and water's going to run not only to the Dead Sea, to the east, but to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, to the west. We, we know that's going to happen. But we also know that Jesus is going to appear and do things in the campaign of Armageddon. Most people believe Armageddon is not just in the Valley of Megiddo. That's to the north of Israel, but also, uh, uh, and, and we see that uh, Jesus is going to be there fighting a battle. But we also see him in Joel 3 in a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, now down in Jerusalem. But we also see, according to Isaiah 63, that he's going to be in Basra, which is down on the other side of the Dead Sea in Jordan. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that Jesus Christ is going to come back in judgment. And we know that he's going to appear in those places that are in the scriptures. But there's a hundred different views about the timing of that. Okay? 
And you got to go there and read them. And uh, some people believe he's going to do the battle of Armageddon first, and then he's going to appear on the Mount of Olives. Other people believe he's going to appear on the Mount of Olives first, and then he's going to engage in the battle of Armageddon. Some people, no matter what they believe in that timing, believe he's going to start in the north with the battle of Armageddon and end up in the south. Other people believe he's going to start in the south and end up in the north. I just know that the scriptures say he's going to be at those places. I don't know the sequence exactly. But I do know this. Speaking of in verse 21, you see, when people reject God's mercy and grace now, I hear people say, well, why didn't God do anything about it? Well, see, we live in an era of mercy and grace, the church age. He didn't come in to heal the righteous but the sick. He's patient and he's long-suffering, but there's going to come a day when the door shuts. And for those who have rejected his mercy and grace, ultimately... Their carcasses are going to be eaten up by the birds of prey. But for those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, they're going to kick all of this off with the marriage supper of the Lamb and accompany him on white horses to participate in a battle where they'll never have to fire a shot. The Lord will just speak his word the victory is won. The victory will be won. You say, man, that's not a very uplifting sermon or teaching. I, I see what you're saying. Except for we're going to be so preoccupied with the goodness and majesty of Christ himself that it's going to be an eternal exploration of all that he is but now that we know this stuff, what are we going to do? That's the thing. We know where we're going. And we know it's not because of anything we've done. It's because he's loved us. But don't you want to go tell everyone? Everyone you meet, your family that don't believe, you want to pray for them, you want to keep loving them, you keep serving them, keep provoking them to spiritual um, uh, uh, conversations and then having the Holy Spirit impact them. But then all those people that you come in contact with, whether you're at school, walking down the hall, or you're at work at the, the person who's had a death in their family and you can minister, or even the person who's mean and, and, and obnoxious to you, you know there's some hurt underneath. Jesus didn't say to the hurt and obnoxious, get away from me, I can't stand you. He wanted to get to know them and love them and share with them because he had an eternal perspective and he's calling us to do the same. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this glorious chapter. <laughs> You're coming back to set all things right. Wow. Lord, what a blessing.
that you've given us the rest of the story, the end of the story. Lord, help us to be people who are praisers and not complainers. Lord, help us to have a heavenly perspective to worship you in all of your attributes for all that you are, Lord, not because of what you give us or don't give us. Lord, help us to be ones that recognize that we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating us coming together with you, the bride, with the groom. And then, Lord, help us to be people who would lay down our lives for others, including our enemies. We need your help in this, Lord. <laughs> we need your supernatural power and strength to do it. Lord, help us to renounce self and live for you, filled up with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you all. and Have a great week. You're so quiet tonight. And uh, God bless you.